1: Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21.
2: And then you come back to us and you say, I need x amount of pounds of these hops for these beers and we plant them for you in good faith and we have contracts and it's it's a wonderful partnership and i think we all have to remember that we're partners in this together because you know without hops you can't brew beer
0: just a few weeks ago some of the smartest minds in our industry converged on providence rhode island for the 2022 brewing summit where sustainability was the theme I was asked to explore the topic of the sustainability of the American hop growing industry, an industry that has experienced major regulatory challenges, volatile weather, significant consolidation, and more. What follows is a recording of that lively session. I hope you enjoy it, but I also hope it'll spark more discussion among brewers in regards to what we want this industry to look like in the future and how we can best support those outcomes. Okay, welcome all. Uh, We've got a great lineup of panelists today, uh, most of whom need no introduction, but let's give each of them a chance to briefly introduce themselves. Let's go on over, Carl.
3: Okay, Carl Okert. Uh, I've been uh, around the brewing industry for a while as a UC Davis graduate in fermentation science. It was about the same time Mitch Steele was there. And uh, I started the Bridgeport Brewery in Portland, Oregon. It was Oregon's first, really, kind of first craft brewery in 1983. Um, I've worked in brew pubs and breweries from Brewpubs size to Anheuser Busch, and I was the MBA technical director for four years. Uh, published a, a book series that maybe some of you have read, that's the uh, called the Practical Handbook for the Specialty Brewer. There's the three-volume set, and uh, that's done quite well, I guess, for the for the MBAA. Um, I live in just south of Portland, Oregon, so I live near the Willamette Valley hop region and within kind of an easy reach of the Acoma, uh region, and I've been selecting and buying hops since the early 1980s, so I've gotten to know a few of these folks along the way. Um, I'm currently writing a, a, a new textbook that I'm publishing through the MBAA called The Craft Brewer's Guide to Methods and Procedures. Uh, <clears throat> we're supposed to try to get that thing in print, in the next few months, but I've been told there's a supply chain issue with paper <laughs> <laughs> and printing ability, so we'll see when that comes out. But it will have in that guidelines on con, hop contracting and selection guidelines, uh, a lot of the stuff I'll probably be talking about a little later. Thank you, Carl. <clears throat>
4: My name is Darren Gamash, and I'm with Virgil Gamash Farms. Uh, I'm a fifth generation hop grower. I technically Semi-officially started my career in 1997. I had a college degree in marketing and international business. Uh, Since that time, I've done quite a few little projects. Uh, A number of them are mechanically based, automated twining systems, designed our own uh, harvesting equipment, and uh, to the point where we actually have put in a new uh, QC uh, program and protocol for us. It's called uh, Hop Technics. Um, Probably what I'm best known for is one of the principles in terms of uh, handling and managing the Amarillo brand, which is VGXP 01 Varietal, uh, named after my grandfather. Um, I'm very happy to be here, so thank you.
2: I'm John Siegel, uh, the Siegel Ranch. Uh, I got my start at Anchor Brewing Company a long time ago. and uh, The Siegel Ranch has been around for three generations. Uh, Last year was our 80th harvest. Uh, we're only a 470-acre farm. We're known for the first farm to commercially cultivate the Cascade variety. Uh, and um, we're also known for primarily going grower direct. We're known as kind of a maverick farm that likes to talk to brewers directly.
5: Uh, hey, everyone. I'm the one who needs the most introduction. I uh, appreciate John's uh, reference to that. But um, I'm uh, Eric Sanderud. Um I uh, am currently a hop consultant, which a lot of people have read my name tag this week and been like, what? <laughs> so that's kind of fun. I like to go my own way. But um, that just means I work with brewers, farmers, merchants on hop-related things, primarily with brewers. It's education or recipe development or kind of sourcing support. And with sellers, it's a lot of new product development, commercialization. And... Um, but kind of my background of how I got here a little bit is uh, I started growing hops in Minnesota, which is where I currently still live and farm, though no longer hops. I farmed hops for eight years there with a company called Mighty Axe Hops. That was my farm. Um, worked for BSG uh, with their hop program for a little while, and now I'm off on my own. So I've been in the industry for about a decade.
0: Okay, very good. We're going to cover a wide variety of topics during the next roughly 70 minutes. And just to be clear, we're not here to break down the carbon footprint of hop growing. Instead, we'll get, it, get the latest scoop on the typical risks that affect hop growing and hopefully uncover some new and exciting existential threats. <laughs> Uh, before we jump in, let's go around the panel lightning round style and everybody give me your one word answer to the following question. What in your opinion is the single biggest threat to the sustainability of the American hop growing industry?
3: Succession planning in the farmers to keep them as hop farms.
0: Hmm. Regulatory influence. Weather. Hops. <laughs> All right, we'll be sure to get into each of the topics you ranked as most important. Uh, But let's begin with uh, what's perhaps, Carl just mentioned it a bit, but what's perhaps a not-so-obvious threat to sustainability um, of of hop growing in America. Carl, you've been in the industry a long time and have observed uh, the consolidation of hop growers, substantial consolidation. Talk about what that consolidation means for the sustainability of hop growing.
3: Uh, Well, when I I started out in 1983, uh, there was well over 100 hop-growing families. And you could probably clarify that long ago. It might have been 150. 150 plus, yeah. yeah. something like that. A lot of hop-growing families. There's less than 50 now. So there's been a huge amount of consolidation. There are people who have sold their farms, and those farms have turned into something else altogether. But um, I guess my, uh, you know, we're seeing the older cohort uh, folks are... um, are retiring or wanting to retire. Some of them but been able to pass the torch along to and the farm operations along to their uh, their family members. Um, but there are some families that that's probably not going to be much of an option to. And then the question is, what happens to that acreage? Does that get uh, bought up by another hop growing family, or does that get converted, uh, you know, bought and converted into something else, some other kind of high value crop like uh, you know wine grapes or blueberries or or whatever. So. <laughs> I see that as a uh, kind of a threat, just from talking to different growers and seeing—I mean, we're seeing some like Blake Crosby and, and you and Pete Weathers, and we're seeing some of those younger uh, folks come into the the industry, and that's really encouraging. But um, trying to to make sure that uh, these family operations continue to be hop-growing operations is is really important for the sustainability. Do we as everybody gonna drink every time we say sustainability? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Darren and
0: John, a lot of growers have sold their farms or discontinued hop growing because the next generation didn't want to stick with it. Why did you decide to pursue the family business and what does the next generation look like? What's your succession plan? Do you want to take
4: that
2: one yeah, you? I no. mean it's um uh, it's a it's a great question and it is definitely um, An issue. Uh, It is in the Siegel family. I mean, I have a son who's 27. He's doing very well in real estate. He is interested in the hop business, and I think he will eventually go in, but I don't want to push him. You know, it's uh a he really likes to drink beer. And he drinks a lot more beer than I can, which is a real talent in this industry. So I think that will really help him. And he's also incredibly charming and much better looking than me. So I think he has a real future in the hop business. But it is definitely is definitely something that we're concerned about in the Siegel family. And. Uh, Um, It's a bridge we haven't really crossed yet. We are talking about it more and more because I'm not getting any younger. But when I did get in the business, you know, we were down to only 83 83 acres. We were an AB grower for 35 years. And when InBev purchased Anheuser-Busch a long time ago, people know that history it was a very very stressful time for many growers and we luckily we got out of that situation and i was able to thankfully because of the crappier industry save our farm uh, a lot of growers didn't think the seagull ranch was even in business uh so we're thankful for that but yeah it, it's definitely an issue we have in
0: the, in the seagull family as far as moving forward is who's going to come in after me so.
1: and, and and how did
0: you decide to stick with it i mean was that a struggle for you to decide whether or not to stick with the family business it's a, yeah, you know, I, I was in the business for five, after Anchor, I spent five years in the business, and then this is a long
2: time ago, there were only 40 breweries, 40 to 50 breweries when I was in the business a very long time ago, and then we became an AB grower, and there was really nothing we produced to do, so I left for almost 20 years, and my father really um, was fine with that, and, and the bottom line is that when my father passed away, we suddenly had a liability on our hand. We had 470 acres in the ground that we owned, and we only had 83 acres contracted. And we had two years uh, being paid not to grow hops or AB uh, for us to turn the ranch around. Uh, so my first CBC was Boston in 2010. And basically, I walked in there not knowing a soul and had to start introducing myself to craft brewers. And of course, they were locked up with very long, expensive contracts during the hop shortage, which is another discussion. And you know, luckily, I was able to convince some of them and to. Look at us as a future supplier direct for our farm. But otherwise, so I really got back in the business because otherwise, um, we tried to sell the farm. We actually tried to sell the farm in 2010 and came very close to selling the farm to a very big player. Um, and um, many years later, I, I sat with this fellow on an airplane and I thanked him very much for not buying the farm. <laughs> so it's been a good run.
4: So I, I guess uh, I look at this in a couple different ways as far as the, the The issue of of people coming in and all that sort of thing I think that the last 20 years has, has demonstrated that when when there's ample investment in the hop market you start seeing uh, people uh, Interested in growing hops so you see small farms like Lowe's startup. start up you can make the same case for yours Um, Eric got into it so I do think that uh, as an industry when we start talking about small family farms that investment occurs and it largely it just depends on the rest of the industry to make that happen Um, in our situation specifically uh, when we look at uh, succession planning as the farms get larger those of us that have stayed in we've changed from the the and we still have the same ethics and moral characteristics and all that but we've changed from your small family farm to more of a family agribusiness so we i look for talent i look for people to manage the the the, uh, different operations that we're doing and it kind of uh takes away the risk from the individual family members to a certain degree um i I'm uh, 48 years old and my family is relatively young. Uh, my son is uh, nine years old and my daughter's 11 so there's plenty of, of time for them to make the decision if they would like to stay in the business. so.
3: You just need to tell them how much you enjoy it every day. <laughs>
4: <laughs> this is great. What a great life. I love yeah, going Yeah, ex- ex- Exactly. It's fun. I will tell you that Lily asked to go uh, look at hops
3: with me last week. Oh, and that's I was, good. That's a I good sign. I was like, that's, that is a good thing. It's a good, good sign. But, you know, if you see those hop pools come out of the ground, that's, that's a bad sign. Yeah. that's because it's a very expensive thing to set up a hop farm so um, that's that's what we kind of watch for sometimes on bad in bad harvests I've seen corn planted between the rows Mm -hmm. yeah and that's just sort of a oh shit kind of moment there but uh, then things have turned around so that's been good all right
0: growers what's the latest in the pest and disease department Uh, do we have any hop plant pandemics on the way Um, is it business as usual or was there anything in particular on this front that kept you up at night this year
4: I can. I'll you tackle can talk that about one that first. One. I don't want to talk about it. So yeah. So I. So there's a new little pest that we have down in the Grandview area. Uh, it's a Japanese uh, beetle. It's new to our area. Okay. Uh, How the fuck did that get into
2: our area? I have no idea. I think it was Walmart, honestly. Go ahead. Anyway, I'm sorry. Sorry. It could have been. been. I'm sorry.
0: I was supposed to behave here,
4: but. Now, but I don't think that's necessarily the the largest threat. Um, I feel that, at least from a quality perspective, every time that we have uh, a smoke layer and that comes in in August, it kind of lowers the, the terpene and thiol production in the hop plants. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something we can deal with relatively easily, but I also think that we just need to be aware of it okay. and manage manage through it. Okay. Also, just temperature. I mean, I, met, I mentioned weather
2: before. You know, we had a ridiculously cold spring uh, the year before. We had a ridiculously hot spring. Um, for, all, for all you people that don't believe in climate change, you know, just sit up here and you know, listen, live our lives because it every year has just been zany as hell. And so, I, the cold spring has really affected the baby crop this year, um, and I think we're going to have a very light baby crop. Um, I think quality-wise we'll be fine, but I think weather and temperature are really a, a very big problem um, moving forward. Um, we can deal with the issues with downy and powdery. We can deal with mites. We, we can deal with, you know, hop stump viroid, keep your, keep your tools separate. You know, there are ways we can work, but you can't control temperature. You can't control the weather. And I, I just think that's really going to be a challenge for us in the future.
0: You guys might not be able to see it, but there's a picture of the spotted lantern fly up there on the screen. Any concerns about that? That's something that you know, we're starting to see in, in my area in the mid-Atlantic more often than we'd like to. I haven't seen it in our blocks yet. That's good. Yeah, Let's keep it that way. <laughs> Alright. There is roughly the equivalent of an entire hop harvest in storage, and the 2022 harvest is now underway. Who is going to use all these hops?
3: Not me. I don't run a brewery anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I would suggest the
0: brewers. <laughs> Any concerns about sort of the, the current stocks, if you will?
4: I think anytime you have uh, large stocks, that's always a concern. But I also think that uh, based on the, the history of the last 20, 30 years, uh, the industry is disciplined enough to... To uh, take steps to mitigate that, um, you've got. In, in our in, uh, in our case, we started doing uh, acreage reductions back in 2019. Okay, uh, trying to match to um, uh, our inventory levels to what was actually being consumed. Um, Historically, that wasn't always the case with a lot of varietals. So. How,
0: how, how does that flow and, and work itself out? Because you know, um, you know, John can be sitting over there saying, "Well, hey, you know, Darren's pulling out all this acreage. Maybe I could plant a little bit more and take that out You know, like how, you know, how, there's not like one person that's mandating sort of you know what the acreage should or shouldn't be. How does that work itself out?
4: <laughs> well, in this instance, I'm a brand manager for a specific brand, right? So, so it's so easier for you. It's easier for me yeah. to do that.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, I, I, I think we really listen to the brewers and what their needs are. Okay. You know, we're, we're, we're providing, we're trying every year and spending a ton of money to grow the very best hops we can for you as brewers. And we, we listen to you and your needs. And you listen to your salespeople, which is a big mistake. <laughs> but that's, that's the way it flows. And, and then you come back to us and you say, I need X amount of pounds of these hops for these beers. And we... Plant them for you in good faith, and we have contracts, and it's it's a wonderful partnership. And I think we all have to remember that we're partners in this together, because you know, without hops you can't brew beer, I, and and without you we can't grow hops. So it's really a partnership. And I think that t- at times, you know, it's it's very difficult for us as growers because we're really taking our our you know our lead from you, you know, and what recipes you need and what hops you need, and and. When there's a year's worth of, worth of hops in a warehouse, I feel bad, um, but it's like we didn't, you know, you guys came to us for the hops, so we grew them in good faith, and that's where we're at. I mean, it's, it's a tough Not thing. Not
3: quite. Not quite. Okay. All right, crack me, Carl, because you know better so, than I do. So in 2015, word was put out that the uh, that crap brewing was going to hit 20% market share mm. by, uh, what was it, 20 by, by 2020. And, and where are we at, Carl? and i don't think i don't know where are we at 12 i don't know not 20 <laughs> yeah so well below 20 and so you the message went speculated? out to you think
2: growers are just throwing well, stuff no. out without contracts growers were
3: kind of told you guys need to increase your acreage and, and you did and then on the brewing side we were told uh, we're the you know the growers aren't going to take the risk the uh, brewers had to take the risk so we had 100% contracts 5 year 100% contracts wrong yeah that's where's there is there a train wreck on there there is yeah yeah so i mean we have, those of us who've been in the business a while do yeah, that yeah and we talked to our dealers and we said you know you can't do this because we don't we can't until we can uh contract with our customers what they're going to buy for the next five years we can't give you hop contracts at 100 percent for the next five years and that is kind of what interesting so they, people sign contracts and there's no way they're going to be able to do it. plus the whole covid thing came along and that right. was like right. everything but that's true even even that had that not happened we still would have had the same problem so it's there has to be a two-way relationship you're right we're our partners in this and there has to be a two-way relationship um, brewers need to take off the rose-colored glasses do not listen to your salespeople. Because they have to produce a report that says they 're going to grow by fifteen twenty twenty five hundred percent whatever to the owner of the company tell them okay you you give that sales you give that sales uh, projection to the owner now you tell me what you think you 're actually going to sell because that 's what I need and if you think you 're going to get twenty five percent more, prove it how are you going to do that Where are you going to go what what markets are you going to expand what uh, what Walmart or sam 's clubs are you going to get into You have to challenge the uh, the people that are providing you these forecasts because that's what it all comes down to is reasonable, realistic, realistic Ouija boards, realistic <laughs> forecasts. Now your forecast will always be wrong. No one's ever going to get it 100%. But going into it, you want to make them as least wrong as possible. And from there, go ahead and try to get your, your contract in together. But you know, these market dynamics where all of a sudden uh, the, uh, the outward forces are making Bad decision making happened, and that's what happened. I think with that 2015 message that went on, is bad decision making started happening, and now we're kind of all paying the price. Interesting.
0: Does anybody think? Um, I don't know if this is the answer or not, but um, you know, should the HGA play a bigger role in that, or should there be some board or some group that really helps to guide the industry in terms of you know what the total acres should be, or should we just let market forces work it out?
4: We, we tried that back. Yeah. Uh, it was called the Federal Marking
3: Order, and that was back in the 80s, right? Yeah, so I was like, 80s. yeah it was bad. And I do remember that. I remember it. Bad. Bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that was like an enforced yeah, acreage it was, limit. It didn't work. Yeah. But, you know, but this isn't working either. No. You know, no. But, so. Go ahead. So
4: we did a hybrid situation. Uh, so anyone that came to us in those years from 16 through uh, 22 and had a contract with us, we modified it, and we cut the acres. And that was kind of how we knew what the litmus test was going to be for where we needed to be for inventory production for the following year. Having inventory isn't necessarily a bad thing, because it gives you space to react to weather events, uh, natural disasters around the world, uh, logistics issues, that sort of thing. But too much is a problem.
0: Cool. All right. there's this silly little podcast that a few people and listen to in the industry. Um, Carl, you've been on on the show before, trying to help brewers make uh, fewer bad decisions. Uh, you just mentioned uh, responsible, along uh, with contracting. Talk about responsible contracting on the brewer side, and uh, whether or not the current glut of hops is somewhat a product of irresponsible well, contracting.
3: I've seen a few of these cycles come across in the last you know forty years, and. It all starts with realistic sales projections. Realizing they're not going to be right, but 100 uh, percent, but they don't have to be. They just have to be less wrong. And um, you know, and I've dealt with this. I used to, when I was with the, I used to buy all the hops for the Gambierius Company, which was Shiner, Bridgeport, and Trumer. And uh, I would tell the, the salespeople. Okay, you've got to get Carlos Alvarez. His sales projections showing a forty-five percent increase. That's great. Now show me what you actually think is going to happen out there. And I did challenge him on things, and 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 with that, we were able to to keep it a little bit tighter. But getting into rolling contract situations was kind of a a good idea in the past, and that was a one hundred percent, seventy-five percent, fifty percent, three-year rolling contract. So you're. for Cascade this year, you're 75% on it for next year, and you're 50% contracted for the year after, and then they just kind of bump up and you top up each year to keep it, and that way you can make adjustments as you go, and yeah, you can have you know keep keep your inventory sensible and that sort of thing, pay attention to your inventories keep it sensible, but be able to have the latitude, and what really bothers me was this five year 100% thing, because that totally blew that whole concept out of the water and left people sitting there struggling to to deal with these things. Um, you know, if they have, uh, you know, I, I looked at, uh, um, when I became the brewing director for the Deschutes Brewery in Bend, we had 35 hop varieties in the in our system. And it was, you know, you've got to rationalize those things down. I mean, we were taking any kind of shiny new hop variety that came along and, and buying 5,000 pounds at a time. And pretty soon we had a lot of, a lot of old hops. so. Um, rationalizing your, your varieties, which means just trying to keep them down to a reasonable level, uh, trying to keep the, the number of, of people you're buying from reasonable so you're not trying to buy from three dozen different uh, suppliers. Just kind of keep it easy if, if possible. And um, paying attention to your inventories when you're making your calculations on what to buy. You know, a a favorite thing I like to do was back in the old days when people added bittering hops to brew kettles. I don't know if anybody does that anymore. People don't even add hops to kettles anymore, I guess. But um, was to buy my alpha hops on the basis of kilograms of alpha instead of kilograms of hops. And that way, if the lot that we liked was at one certain alpha level, I just made sure we had, we contracted to get kilograms of alpha as that particular variety. So it, it didn't really matter which lot we bought. We were always going to get the, the correct amount of, of alpha acid that we would use. So things like that are uh, helpful. It's a little trickier if you're going with dry hopping because you're, uh, you're really kind of buying it by the pound for uh, hops that you want a variety you want to do there. But I'm um, just paying attention to the details there. Um, when you have a contract, Total it out. If you have five thousand, ten thousand pounds of hops at at ten dollars a pound, that's a hundred thousand dollar contract. A lot of these hunt contracts are 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 set up so that's the pounds and the price per pound, and that's it. And you don't really know what the value of that entire contract is, but when you start you start extending those things out and tabulating them, you'll know that pretty soon you've got a half million dollar contract with that uh, for that those hops. That's a lot of uh, of risk for your company. It's a lot of commitment for your company. This is a contract. There's a lot of uh, commitment for them. Um, Joe Hertrick once said at the District Northwest meeting, pound for pound, there's no greater entertainment uh, value than the American hop industry. And uh, <laughs> That was back in 2007, that's shortly awesome. before the hop shortage. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. it's it's been, it's an interesting, because it's all family run, it is kind of an interesting uh, dynamic that's out there. And uh, I I was around during that hop order they were discussing in the early 80s, and I I heard the growers were not happy with it. But it was kind of out of control, and they needed to do something. So, I'm not sure it shouldn't be brought back, but who knows.
0: Growers, I hear a lot of rumblings about labor shortages, the price of labor, and how challenging that makes things on your end. But I have no idea how much of that is real versus sensationalized. Does anybody want to do this work? Should we expect your fields to be full of robots and drones soon? Tell us what's going on.
4: I guess I'll tackle this one. So the So the so there was a pass or a piece of legislation passed in Washington State where um, historically uh, ag labor had been exempt from overtime pay, and so now there is a phase in starting this season. Um, with overtime being paid on any uh, hours over 55 and it's working down to 40 hours in the next two years. So that's kind of the, the background. Um, for us, uh, that translates into just on harvest because we work 70, our, our crews and we run two crews are each putting in 70 hours a week because we have a very short window. So that increases our um, our expense for labor just in that short period of time, uh, I think 25, 24 to 26%. So it's a significant impact in environment or in regulatory um, uh, fees.
2: This all came from California, from the dairymen, and and, it's, and I can understand what happened in California with this with these dairy guys. You know, they were basically they couldn't leave, you know, because you got to milk the cows. But it has no connection to the hop business, zero. I mean, this is a 30-day window where we're trying to bring in our, our crop, and now we're being hit with with overtime. So now, I'm sure you're looking at new technologies. Right. We're looking at ways at the Siegel Ranch where we're going to do two eight-hour shifts, and maybe not pick during the day. We're going to have to. You know, upgrade our and mechanize more of our picking machine as well as our field combines to try and cut down labor. And it sounds terrible, but you know, if you're we're going to be paying a lot of money per hour this year just for one hour, not overtime. And when you go over, you know, suddenly you're going up 26%. Well, that wasn't figured into our contracts with you brewers. You know, this is this is an added cost, and it's only going to get worse. So we're spending a lot of money at our farm. To figure out ways to try and cut labor for future harvests because we don't see it getting any better you know it's only going to get worse
4: i I think that it does open up a window for innovation um there's there's mechanical innovation there's those sorts of things that that um, uh, john alluded to and now there's a a price point that's high enough where there's a reasonable ability to invest back into it. If you right. know you're going to spend twenty four or twenty-six percent more for harvest, well now all of a sudden maybe that that combine system isn't so far out of reach. But it's it's also a thing and I think it's it's important to remember and and everyone in this room that's in the hot business can attest to this. The the hot business is a global business. So our fee structures so we I guess in essence we compete on that global level. And We have to always keep an eye on what the lowest cost provider, what that looks like in other countries, because ultimately, even if we do, we are selling 100% to domestic craft. At some point in time, we will have to compete against what's going on in other areas.
0: A lot has changed in a relatively short period of time. Uh, Roma acreage is now something like four times that of alpha since 2020. The registered trademark symbol has appeared next to the majority of the top 10 varieties. Darren and John, describe which varieties were on your farms when you first got started versus now. And give us your perspective on the pros and cons of those shifts from alpha to aroma and from public to private varieties. Would you want
4: me
2: to take this one? No, you go first, John. Great. we were always an aroma farm, so we were kind of actually very different than most hop farms years ago, because we cultivated Cascade. So we never, we didn't grow CTZs until I got back in the business, and Lagunitas asked us to grow um, CTZs, I think it was 2012 or 2013. They wanted, us. So we were always an aroma farm, where everyone else at that time, prior to that, were, were really growing high off of hops. Um, you know, I, th- I think again we're 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 looking to brewers for, for the feedback as what we're going to put in the ground for you. And, and and the pendulum is swinging. It seems to be swinging as everything in business, one way too far or the other way too far. And I think that um, we ha- we all have to try and strive for balance. That's that's all I'm going to say. And you
4: can you can follow up from that. Yeah. So when I started, we were growing cluster and Galena, and we had a few blocks of. Uh, aroma varieties. I think we had a, uh, a contract with uh, with the Bush companies for Willamette and Tetnang And we had a little bit of experimental stuff. Liberty, uh, Ultra, and Crystal. And that was kind of the extent of, of the bit. So, But what was the second part of your question? The
0: shift from public to private.
4: Oh, I, didn't, I didn't approach that. You can take that one. Um, I think that it's... <laughs> I think there, there's a natural evolution there, right? And so, as the um, as there became more people looking to uh, differentiate themselves at, at the brewery level for more different flavor profiles, et cetera, et cetera, there became a requirement to put out more varietals quicker. And I think that really is kind of what drove the the public versus pi- private uh, change. So, I I thought,
2: listen, it's. Progress. I think it's great. You know, I think we have a lot of great hops out there for you guys to brew with. That's the bottom line. But on the other standpoint, I don't think public varieties should take a hit in pricing because you're paying more for some of the for the proprietary hops, and I think that's happening a little bit in the marketplace, and I, and I think it's unfortunate because you're going to see more and more public varieties go south, right? And then there'll be a time where there's going to be, and I'm just going to be straight here, there's going to, to be a couple bad crops, right? And a lot of acres are going to go out, and then suddenly, oh shit, we need centennials, and there's not going to be a lot around, and they'll be $15 a pound. And I don't want to hear anyone complaining about it because that you're going to pay for it because that's, that's the market at the time. And I think it's important, again, going back to balance, that, you know, it's all good, but if we get fair pricing for all hops, it helps everyone. And a sh- lot, of, lot of people we're working with sometimes, they understand that, but some don't. And they're looking for a short-term play. And the short-term play is cutting off your nose to spite your face because at the end of the day, it's going to come back. It always does. And it's historic. If you can go back... 2007-2008 and go beyond that you're going to see it's a cyclical thing and it's, it, listen, we bought 47 acres of land on $15 contract on Centennial just 6 or 7 years ago because there was a short crop and I used the cash to buy this land so I charged $15 at the time. I didn't feel good about it because I don't think Brewer should be paying that kind of money for hops but the problem is we just need to have some type of fairness in, in the landscape and I think we'll all benefit from it. From a long-term standpoint. Coming up, I think I think the hop has a future. I really do. Uh, from a grower standpoint, it's a great hop to grow. Whether you guys like it in your recipes, you know, you let us know. Um, we have four acres in the ground right now. It's sold. We've sold out. So um, we'll see where it goes. But it is—it is a hop that I think has has potential.
0: I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas.
6: Thanks for listening to the Master Brewers podcast. Did you know that Master Brewers offers a wide range of technical resources for breweries of all sizes? Whether you're new to brewing or a seasoned expert, join our community to connect with key players in the profession and stay up to date on the latest in brewing science, technology, and operations. Become a member of Master Brewers with code BEER2022 to save 20% on your membership dues now through December 31st united we brew
0: there's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors the next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies be sure to thank them for their generous support
7: get to know proximity malt we malt superior european style low protein varieties grown close to home in delaware and colorado domestically grown precisely malted to style With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com.
1: Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com
6: brought to you by CanCraft and BSG. Whether you need a full-service packaging experience from design to delivery, or you just need some aluminum cans, CanCraft can do. CanCraft's design and aluminum specialists are here to support your business every step of the way. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com backslash CanCraft to learn how CanCraft can help realize your brand potential.
0: Are you looking to improve quality, shelf life, and sleep better at night while offering a wider portfolio of beverages? Alpha Laval has over 30 years of experience delivering in-line flash pasteurization technology to the brewing industry. Flexitherm is a tried-and-true flash pasteurizer at an affordable price and comprised of Alpha Laval's own high-quality pumps, valves, and heat exchangers. Whether you offer barrel-aged beer non-alcoholics or are expanding your customer reach with your core brands, Alpha Laval's Flexitherm can accomplish all your goals in a flash. Visit us at alphalaval.us slash mbaa to learn more. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. The world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins September 9th. District Milwaukee meets at Third Space Brewing September 15th. Don't miss the Using Cellpose 2.0 and Open Source Deep Neural Network for Yeast Cell Counting webinar on September 19th. District Eastern Canada meets in Montreal on September 21st. District Ontario's Iron Brewer competition is September 23rd. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. now back to the show darren and john how does that um how does such high acreage of only a couple of varieties affect harvest timing picking schedules and general workflow on your farms I mean, we're, we are small at
2: 470, so we don't have the same pressures that like Darren has at his ranch. Um, but it is, it is an issue, and, and uh, from a brewer perspective, you know, you obviously want to get the very peak. Harvested hops, you can get. Um, so it is a challenge, and I think technology in, in the future is also going to play a significant role in being able to harvest the hops in a timely fashion. And also, we're using a lot of technologies in the field as far as determining when ripeness is there to br- to bring them in. Uh, so I think it's it's a, it's a combination of technologies, and because um, there's only so much you can invest from a back end harvesting and drying capacity for for large farms. So it's really a question of how do we do it in in a timely fashion. It will be one of the challenges of the future.
4: So this was a a challenge for our operation. Um, Back in 2004, we were about 274 acres. Uh, This year, we're 1,200 acres. Um, Of that, the historical um, uh, range is about uh, you know, your harvest windows are five to seven days for any particular variety. And we became famous for Amarillo. And that son of a gun is a tiger. And it's difficult. And uh, we had to figure out some way to, to wrap our arms around it and, and, and work within the, the limitations of the variety. So how we approached it was that I put in, I hired two chemists, uh, organic chemists, and we started fingerprinting and using uh, uh, the maturity of the, of the hop. And we started looking at the microclimates. And we would go through. And we have this lab we call Hop Technics. And we have our harvest timing protocols. And what they are is, is the lab goes out. And they've already started. Um, and they sample each block. And they do it as we get closer. They start out once a week. And then they go up to uh, three times a week and they produce a list of fields that we go in and pick. And what we're looking for is we're looking for a ratio of thiols, and we're looking for a ratio of terpenes and intensity. And we jump around. So I've been able to take a five to seven day window on one variety, and I've been able to broaden it all the way up to uh, 24 days and 26 days at the peak. Um, Right now it's uh, currently about, oh, I would say it's about 18 days. and we've also invested in enough uh, capacity on the front end because it's, it's um, uh, to do this. And with, and with that, we also increased and we started an auxiliary grower program. And so we did that in 2012, 2013. And so we started utilizing the windows of these different um, growers around the, around the valley, around the tri-state area, and over in Europe. So that's how we're able to, to uh, do that. A bunch of different ways cool used
3: to be uh, early middle and late cluster right <laughs> yes yeah. yeah l1s l8s yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs>
0: carl how does that shift to proprietary varieties feel as a brewer brewers can't buy these varieties from just anyone are hops being monsantoized
3: yeah it's an interesting term i've i had uh, some great debates with john gorman from haas and the old yeah, not too distant past on this and uh, I never did quite <laughs> change his mind on it, which is pretty normal for John Gorman, but in any event um, the you choices... Didn't, you didn't get arrested did I you? didn't get arrested, <laughs> no yeah. citizens arrest um, the choices are more limited in uh, the proprietary varieties um, because they're starting to be as you said, you know, if you look at the, the list they are all I've got a TM next to them now so the public varieties are starting to be taking backseat I'm sorry to see a lot of these crystals in danger, Nugget's in danger, lamets even in danger, and it's it's kind of sad to see the, to me it's kind of sad to see this nostalgic because I grew up with these hops, but in any event the, the varieties are a little more uh, limited, uh, who you can buy them from is limited. I like buying Farmer Direct, I started doing that with Blake Crosby's farm uh, way back in uh, just when AB InBev took over and the hop farmers were just, uh, there was, there was there were signs up, you know, you pick hops on the fields. There were hops that were just left on the vine to, uh, to go, and uh, it was pretty sad to see. And so a lot of farmers started talking to brewers. It wasn't always that way. That was For a long time, we just were kind of kept away from each other. But I like buying Farmer Direct. You can buy Farmer Direct from proprietaries that are produced by a farmer, mm-hmm. but if you don't, if they don't produce those, if I go to another farm that's growing... One of these other varieties, mosaic, Simcoe, whatever. I have to make the arrangements through the the owner of that rootstock, which is you know, uh, you know, hop breeding company or whoever. So that's a limiting factor there. And then the pricing is, it's not really market pricing. It's more of a pricing set by the owner of the rootstock and what their management plan is. And in some ways, I can understand that it is kind of like the hop board mm-hmm. stuff that I'm talking about in a way. But it also means that. The prices don't really reflect what the market, the supply and demand curve actually looks like. So necessarily. So, and the lastly, I think it, it puts uh, pressure on public breeding programs, public uh, research programs at the university because they are not necessarily getting the funding from the USDA if the if the volume of hops aren't you know there to and the farmer support isn't there to, to justify that. So those are some things that I would put forth.
0: Eric, I know the topic of public versus private has been on your mind. Let's hear your perspective.
5: Yeah, hey, sure. Uh, so you're all reading the the uh, my my, uh, my quote there. You know that that was the year where I think a lot of us saw the, the either the harvest reports or now this year's stringing reports and did the math, right? Uh, and seeing that the Anchorage had really definitively shifted to over fifty percent private. Uh, This is a really tough conversation in our industry. Um, People find themselves in different corners. People find themselves with different kind of financial incentives around successes of different varieties or whatever. But I think a really important place to start with this conversation is that this isn't about uh, which one's better. It's not about private versus public. It's not a zero-sum game. It truly is not. And in fact, some of your favorite private varieties are because of the public hot program. Uh, providing uh, initial breeding stock for that. So it's not a zero-sum game. It's more of a conversation that I believe we need to be having as an industry as a whole, hops and, and beer, about what is, the, what is the sort of healthy balance that we're looking for? Um, like Many of us were shocked when we saw the shift over 50% towards private, and um, it very well may be that that's a healthy balance point, um, but I think it's equally obvious to all of us that a, it's a healthy balance point is not 100% private or, at this point, 100% public. And so where is that space? And I think to be proactive and think like, hey, it's been collapsing very quickly. That graph is changing rapidly over the last few years. Now is a good time to talk and say, what is the, where's the space that we want to be? What particularly does the public program or the public releases need to um, maintain some amount of relevancy to maintain the value that they hold for our industry? You know, those values are, are very wide-ranging. I think all of us in this room would have a different answer and think we'll get to that of like what is the value of the public hop program for you, your brewery, your farm, our industry. Um, at the bottom line, it's it its resiliency, it's sustainability, it's optionality, it's creating different types of breeding stock, it's creating different lines of genetics with different necessarily different outcomes. Um, you know, when you start breeding a new hop variety, it has a goal that you're, you're looking to achieve. The public program has a different set of concerns and goals that they're targeted at than pri- than private breeding programs might have. That's important for us as an entire industry to have that diversity. It's important for farms when they're sitting down looking at a veritable menu of what should I plant. It's important to have good public options that do have a market behind them so you can manage your risk portfolio. It's a big thing for a farm if you're 100% signed up behind perhaps one marketing supplier or one person to market your crop. Right, That's what happens if that person doesn't want to or cannot, or whatever happens to that crop, that's putting your farm at risk. So public varieties are valuable for that. You know, they're creating redundancy, they're creating resiliency for our farmers, and that comes back around for every brewer and every drinker to have that again redundancy or resiliency or even just new little niche thing, you know. There are at the HRC meeting a few weeks ago there were a lot of conversations about Specific types of genetic traits that we're really looking for as an industry, and that's something that the public breeding program is going to be providing. But you know, if we if we, if we want to maintain a strong public program, and I think many of us in the industry do, um, the challenge, the biggest challenge I see to maintaining that 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 percentage of acres is maintaining that brewer interest. We'd already heard this from the growers; they plant what you ask for. Um, my uh, my little analogy, and maybe I'm too nervous and I'll, ma- I'll mess it up, but if a, a hop is released in the middle of a forest and a, no one's around to hear it, does that hop even exist? You know, a brewer can't buy a hop that they don't know exists. Um, raise your hand if you've heard of Vista. Good job. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, but what about, say, uh, a Triple Pearl or Triumph? Um we're in a we're in an invested community here. I expect more hands than average. When I ask, you know, the general brewing audience, uh, Triumph also kind of got the uh, short short stick with the release right ahead of COVID, of course. But um, you know, the, the point stands that um, we all have seen how our industry has changed. I mean, we hear about brewers hear about new private varieties. There's a there's a significant financial incentive for those varieties to sell well. Um, which there should be. That makes sense. There's also a marketing budget for the release of a new variety from a private breeder. The, US, the USDA literally does not market. Um, that is not part of the charge of the USDA breeders. And there are a number of other organizations that are in supportive of that pun of public hop ecosystem, um, but none of them really have an exact clear goal for the marketing of public hops to brewers either. And that hasn't been necessary in the past. The people here you know, know more than, about that and the history of it than I do, but certainly um, these days uh, naming Vista and then putting out one or two press releases is, is, is not enough <laughs> to get there for a hop to fully know, you know, to know if this hop really does have a market uh, for it or not. So, there's a lot to talk about.
0: You know, Eric, I get emails every single week from the major hop merchants who are constantly promoting some new trademark variety or product, um, whereas, as you just mentioned, the USDA doesn't have a marketing department. Um, tell us about the Vista Hops project that you've launched and what you hope to achieve with it.
5: Yeah, sure. I, it, it warms my, my, my teeny little, sometimes too cynical heart uh, well, to how see many, how many of you raise your hands uh, to the Vista question. Um, this is a little volunteer effort that I started because I've, I've, you know I've seen this issue as a grower, uh, you know outside the PNW. It's another reason for a strong public program because those those are the uh, varieties that non, non-PNW growers are, are relying on for their acreage. But um, I just thought, hey, you know I, I've I've worked for a company that's marketed hops. I I can see how companies market hops, uh, particularly in the day you of know, social media. Everyone's marketing is out there on their Instagram. You can just go type it up. You know, search hashtag with the hot name, and you can see how it's operating. And so, well, we can do this. Um, We can try this. I worked with Pints and Panels. Thank you so much for the nice coloring and the little logo that we developed. It's entirely uh, crib-sheeted from uh, how I've seen other uh, proprietary varieties (laughs) marketed upon release. Um, And it's to get the word out there. If you don't know about Vista, you can't buy it, and and now you can. Um, I'm really hopeful that it's an opportunity for Others in the space to come together and say, "Hey, we can." We've seen the success of Vista, this, this, the, the, the marketing of Vista, um, which is again an entirely volunteer thing with like my free time and like a little bit of my like side consulting money, <laughs> truly not including like labor, which again has not been paid. It's been a less than four thousand dollar effort, um, and when you put that up against what the marketing budgets are for new proprietary releases or just for marketing of hop merchants in general or for promotion, general promotion of U.S. hops, it doesn't cost a lot of money to get a lot of impact, um, especially in the age of social media. You can reach a lot of people with kind of creativity and energy um, necessarily versus just dollars. Um, breweries know this quite well. Um, so I'm hopeful that it's an opportunity for those in the industry, brewers, marketers, sellers, to kind of come together and think, well, what can we do you know, beyond... Uh, just the, the more recent VISTA effort. What could we do for public ops more generally? And if there's folks who are listening or, or attending today who are interested in talking about what does it look like to support public ops uh, and, and marketing of public ops more in the future, I'd love to have that conversation.
0: Excellent. John, um, we were talking uh, about VISTA earlier today yeah. just a little bit, and you seemed pretty excited about it, at least the agronomics of it. Um, why don't you guys uh, talk a little bit about you know, your experience with that?
2: Yeah, we were asked to uh plant Vista 3 years ago so we were the test bed uh, farm for one acre for the last 3 years of the hop. And um it's a great hop to grow. I mean it uh agronomically it's it's a beast. Um it's a little bushy as far as pick picking but you know uh it's a great hop to grow. I mean, last year we did 15 bale on, on Vista, and it, it doesn't seem to have real issues as far as, um, you know, powdery or downy or uh, other other things that could hit a hop. Um, Henning did, I guess it's Henning did it? Did Henning? Yes. Yeah, Henning did a great job. Dr. Henning did a great job with this variety. Uh, you know, in the rub, you know, in the rub, I, I'm, I'm kind of picky when it comes to rubbing hops. This, this hop didn't wow me in the rub in the field. Um, when it was dried, um, it, it is, it's a nice hop, it kind of has this tropical white grape skin type of aroma. And I've tasted beers from hazy's to um, more traditional uh, IPAs and, and the hop shines very nicely. Um, I've had three beers with, um, with Vista and I, and I liked all of them. So I think, I think the hop has a future, I really do. Uh, from a grower standpoint, it's a great hop to grow, whether you guys like it in your recipes you know, you let us know. Um, we have four acres in the ground right now, uh, and it's sold. We've sold out, so um, we'll see where it goes. But I th- I, it is, it is a hop that I think has has potential.
4: Have you grown? Have you grown any? Or this, this is our first yes. year? Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so we uh, volunteered to plant an acre of uh, Vista this season, and uh, uh, I concur with everything that John said. Um, I haven't had the pleasure of, of actually rubbing it or seeing how it's going to work. That's this year's uh, experiment. Uh, but <clears throat> just to kind of give you an idea of how robust of a plant this is, uh, we actually received our Vista rootstock from the greenhouse, I think, it uh, on June 1st. And so it was about <laughs> geez, this June big. First? Uh, June 1st? Yeah, June 1st. Yeah, so it was like this big. And uh, <clears throat> I think, uh, uh, when did we chat? Uh, two weeks ago. That oh, it so, video like Yeah, a month month about ago. a month ago. So I went out and I took some photos uh, for uh, Eric, and uh, they had already ha- touched the wire. I didn't expect to get anything. In fact, I'd made uh, calls to uh, the distribution houses that were interested in carrying it and said, guys, we're not going to be able to deliver this year. We're just, everything's so late. And uh, it's just, it's already touched the wire, and uh-huh. I expect to see something from it. Um, our goal this year is to figure out what the maturity curves look like and kind of figure out when and what actually pops in the in the hop. Cool. So you can you can
2: let you know if you call me because I can give you more info on that. It okay. seems to be mid late and it also hangs really well. So it's one of these hops where you, if you're suddenly in a jam during harvest, you can let the Vista hang and go go and do what you have to do and come back to it. So we'll talk yeah. later. But it's
3: it's 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 good that way. Yeah. Eric, is that is that a it's, is that one of Henning's projects with Indy Hop? Uh no, this yeah.
5: is this is this is just the USDA and it's, yeah, it was Dr. USDA. Henning's baby, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right.
3: yeah.
0: Okay. okay. Um we've talked a lot about um public breeding of hops. I guess I just want to ask all of you sort of what's you know, what do we see as the the value of the public hop breeding program? I'll jump in on this one. I
4: I look at it maybe a little bit differently. I look at uh, each one of the breeding programs almost as uh, an area or a source of creativity. So if each one, so if we lose one, then that's then the industry is lesser for that, right? So I I look at it like that, and I think that needs to be cultivated because what we're really after is is providing choice for uh, different varietals, not necessarily just for the growers, because every grower I've worked with is a brilliant grower. They can handle any of the varieties that are coming out, and even the more uh, historic ones. Uh, Everyone can handle it. Uh, Really, what we're looking for is the brewers making a decision of what they want to make, whether it's proprietary or public or otherwise, and they're in essence voting with that dollar. Um, i think that the public program is supported by the entire industry the entire industry will continue to vote to support that whether you're um, a grower of uh, proprietary varieties or not Um, i know we're a, a staunch
3: supporter of the public program so i think it's good I think it's important to continue the varietal development that's going on that any grower can can go out and grow. It gives, I you say, choice to the brewer, <coughs> gives choice to the brewers. But there, uh, there is, there's ongoing pest resistance studies, other basic research that the uh, public variety uh, the universities do that isn't necessarily triggered toward one particular outcome or another, and is a benefit for you know across the board. Um, and I think as we get into the climate change stuff I would put pest uh, problems probably in that same bucket as the climate change because pests are triggered by different climate uh, reactions so coming up with different resistance uh, varieties or resistant uh, strains is, is something that uh, I think it's important to do and then collecting, the, and collecting and archiving the germ plasm of these varieties going forward as well so they aren't just lost uh, mm-hmm. and then you know for both proprietary and public breeding programs
2: no, I, I agree with everything that's just said. I think that, you know, you guys are the chefs, and we we supply the spice, you know, and uh, it, it really comes down to what you guys want in your recipe. Um, we certainly would like to grow hops that are not going to be a challenge, like cashmere for instance, which I, I have to bring up because I blame it on, on Brendan McGivney at Odell's. He's not here right now so I can, I can hammer him, but he loved the hop early. It's a great hop in a glass of beer, but it's a bitch to grow, and it, it, it self-destructs. It has this white foam that comes out of the plant. There's this black ooze that goes down on the tape, you know, and it's like it's just a shit show to grow, and it's a public variety, and it's great in a glass of beer. Great, but it's it's a bitch to grow, period, and a story, and I've got acres of it, and I hate it. So, you know, that's where I think the public breeding program, they list, the, you know, the, it's Benjamin Gimini's fault. I'm going to tell them straight out. No, but it really is a, it's a classic example of a great, a great hop and a glass of beer, but not a good hop to grow, and it's public. And that's, that's the issue I have from a breeding standpoint. If we're going to release a public, like Vista, it's a pleasure, right? and as long as it does its job in your recipe and you like it in your beers then we're, we're all happy but you know cashmere shouldn't have been released i mean i don't think it should have been released you come to see our farm this harvest i mean it's absolute disaster uh and how you have to deal and you have like three days to pick it i mean literally it goes from smelling great to being a old baby diaper in like 48 <laughs> to 72 hours it's the most unbelievable thing i've ever seen right do you grow any?
0: Oh, I love
2: it. <laughs> I mean, it literally goes over the hill in three days. It literally, I mean, I don't know if you have a lot of acres of it. It goes from this to baby diaper in a matter of 72 hours. Don, you got two days. It's unbelievable. <laughs> so anyway, that's, I'm sorry. I had a vent. But that's an example of where the hot program really fucked up. So... <laughs>
5: Well, and see, even the, uh, even the screw-ups are, uh, you know, part of the... For me, again, like, it's this diversity thing. We're, our, our, our industries are altogether stronger with diversity, with a healthy balance, and the public program brings things that private programs don't, and various other private programs bring things that other private programs don't. The diversity is key to our long-term sustainability and resiliency as an industry.
3: It certainly seems to arouse passions, which is important. <laughs> I think people really like hops. <laughs> All right, shifting gears
0: a little bit, uh, growers, talk about how wildfires or even just smoke from wildfire has affected your livelihood.
4: You can take that Uh, one. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's created a a whole host of projects down in the basement, I'll give you that. Um, So what we've seen is, and like I mentioned earlier in the program today, I think the the, one of the larger impacts at least from an industry standpoint and not a very and not a pinpoint issue is more of that smoke layer because it interferes with the UV rays so it so last year as an example we delayed harvest for all of our varietals and it varied on region by as few as four days and up to a week um, from historical picking times so when we expect to do that and even with that those delays we finally had to get started because we knew frost was coming and that was a, a that's a terrible thing to encounter in October um, so so we knew that the the intensities weren't going to be where they where we historically want them to be but the profile was there the flavor profile that we were looking for so it ended up being an okay season but it was just not what it could have been. So,
2: You know, it's, it's a real issue, and that's why I said weather at the very beginning here. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's two things that really, climate, climate change and weather and smoke is something we can't control. One of the problems that I have found over the last two or three years is that we don't have a standardized measuring system for smoke taint. And you could see at th- at this meetings how many meeting, how many presentations there's been on hops that have been affected by smoke. It's it's a definite issue, and it's not going to go away. Well, it's, hopefully it's not going to come back yearly, but it's not it's something that's not going to go away. The problem that I have right now today is that there's no real way to measure. And so, what as hop growers, and I know that a lot of hop growers out here can attest to this. You know, you guys get hops, and the brokers are here too. You bring the hops in, and you, you, might not, you might not smell it, but then you'll smell it at a later date. Or the hops then are, are selected and approved by the breweries. Then it gets to the brewery, and then at some panel, someone might have had a bacon sandwich for <laughs> breakfast, and suddenly they're smelling, or smelling some mesquite. And then suddenly it all comes back around, and it's like, what do you do here? So it's, if there is a way, and I've talked to a lot of the folks that gave these presentations about there needs to be some type of way Hopefully we can do this to measure and have some type of objective, not subjective form or non-human form of rubbing. I mean, I love selection. It's a very big part of all of our lives here. But it, it's amazing you know, if how it can affect our livelihoods as growers if suddenly down the line, oh, I smell smoke. And then suddenly that lot of hops is rejected. It's already in the warehouse or it's already at the brewery. It creates a tremendous amount of, craziness and stress and cost um, and that's something we're going to have to deal with moving forward as far as measuring and really showing if this is real or not I mean most times I think it's real but I think you know is it always real and how do we deal with it
4: I, th- I think what it when it comes to smoke and smoke taint specifically the the industry is on a journey and the end goal is to be able to quantify be able right. to um, identify where the, the threshold levels are for detection right. um, and, and that sort of thing. And you can kind of see, and I'm actually gratified by this, that you've got all of the major players working together, um, including the uh, research institutes, trying to determine how to handle this problem. Because yeah. whether or not we like it, the reality is, is that the hops are going to be harvested, they're going to be put in a warehouse, and everything that we deal with will be Post production. Yep. So that's true. That's so determining the methodologies, focusing on that, and uh,
3: uh, working out what where those threshold levels are is really the the answer. Yeah. And and for those of you who are not from the West Coast and haven't been experiencing these wildfire issues, um, it it is hellish to see In, in south of Portland there where I am. I would not. I couldn't see in 2020 when those fires came in. I couldn't see Jim Boyd. I mean, from my front window, I, the visibility was that bad. It was bright orange or pale orange sky, and uh, it was like a heavy, heavy fog. But it wasn't. It was a like choking smoke. You couldn't be outside. We we took masking tape and taped off our windows in our house to keep the smoke out. It was it was just absolutely. And I don't know um, Crosby Farms. You guys, you guys were pretty close, really. Um,
7: yeah, we're sort of on the other side of the interstate, but uh, there was a.
3: Yeah. 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 It it is bad. I know where you guys are it was you guys, terrible. You guys have had some episodes too. It was terrible, yeah. Really? Not something really you something. see in other parts of the country, but it's yeah. been a real big problem here.
0: Yeah. Well, why was Jim Boyd hanging out outside of your house?
3: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> he does that a lot. I don't know, I'm beginning to wonder about this. <laughs> He's always welcome. Come on in next time. Knock on the door, man. <laughs>
0: Garris, talk to us about water availability. Any new concerns or threats on that front?
2: You going to go? You want me to go? Uh, you can
0: go ahead. I mean, we're, we're actually really lucky
2: because um, um, we have the Cascade Mountain Range, and we depend on snowpack uh, where we are and uh, in Washington State. And uh, fortunately, we've really, what was it, four years ago maybe? Was it four years ago we had the problem? We didn't get much snow? I forgot what year it was. I don't remember. I was... A, we, I was We're okay because we had senior rights, so. But we had one year that was really very bad, and guys were, you know, guarding their pump stations, and it was not a pretty sight. But we don't have the issues that California might have in other parts of the United States. And and fortunately, snowpack um, has been great. But, you know, if it doesn't snow this winter, yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, you think we have a stress free life during the winter in the hot business, but I actually am monitoring, and you are too, I know, you're monitoring the snowpack in the Cascades, um, because that's what we depend on uh, for our water. So,
4: it, the, the the water thing is, is an interesting question, because uh, the forecast in our area is, in the Pacific Northwest, is for more water. Um, when we start seeing heat domes, and we experience this up at, right. uh, 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 we grow hops up in uh, northern Idaho, there is a heat dome over the Dakotas, right, and that pushed all the rain up into canada and now all of a sudden we had flooding issues it wasn't lack of water it was too much water and uh, i think that was in 2012 we lost oh i think we're 25 percent of on 600 acres so it was pretty significant. We had tr- we had trout underneath the uh, the hop trellis. It was oh, awesome. <laughs>
0: I'm,
4: I'm still looking for that picture because I know that I know somebody took a picture of that. Jesus. can't find it. Anyway, so it's really it's kind of a multi-pronged thing. I think right. I mean, we've been fairly lucky, and I and our area seems to be fairly stable. Yeah. Cool.
0: Um. I, I want to talk about any threats that we've missed. Um, one of them, um, I think it was Darren mentioned at the beginning, was regulatory. We haven't really sp- talked about that. Um, so uh, talk about regulatory and feel free to bring up any threats that I've failed to identify that, that are on your mind. Well, I'll,
4: since I brought it up, I'll, I'll tackle it. The most pressing one was the, uh, the cost of labor. I think that's, the, at least in my mind, the, the biggest one today. Um, Of course, there's always uh, challenges, and you see this in in any industry you're in, so it's whether it's, uh, well, it's just governmental pressures.
2: I mean, we're being affected like everyone else is. You know, you guys are paying more for cost of goods, and so are we, so it's hitting everyone. The difference is that we have contracts right now that are in stone, uh, so we have to figure out. And you do, too. I mean, if you're buying cans or you're buying whatever it is, you know, you're, you're locked into the contract. So we're all in that same boat. We're, we're all being affected
0: as far as cost of goods, and, and, and it's, it sucks. Do you see anything else on the horizon that um, you really want the next generation to, to start getting ready for, you know, something long-term? don't drink seltzers
3: <laughs> seltzers suck I have my, my
2: nieces and nephews drink seltzers and I say to them
3: yeah, they cause brain cancer so what the
2: hell are you doing you're hurting our family business and I say, "Well, Uncle John it has less calories Becca it sucks it tastes terrible Uncle John you know so that's uh, thank God it's kind of like a Zima thing happening right now for anyone who's old knows that it's you know the seltzers are kind of declining a little bit but you know, I I don't know what this Gen Z you know group what where they're at as far as you know. It seems spirits are just kicking ass right now, and I I, I worry about that um, as far as the beer business is concerned. Um, and uh, the NA beers I think are important. I think that it's, it's a good it's a good thing because they use hops in NA beer, so that's I'm fine with that. <laughs> but I, I I I really worry about I don't worry about the wine business for the. the, the next generation it's really the i think the spirits business is going to kick our ass in the future uh and i'm, I'm really concerned about that you know package cocktails that kind of stuff i think really potentially could be a, a big problem um, as far as uh, beer is concerned
4: yeah. uh, i don't know i would say my advice would be um uh every day there's going to be a different challenge so enjoy what you do because that's the reason you get up in the morning and Go to work. So, that would be my advice to the kids. <laughs> well
5: said. Keep it going on.
7: Yeah.
0: Um, okay. So, how can brewers, researchers, or others in the industry best support hop growing in the U.S. and protect its future?
2: God. Jesus.
4: That's not broad. That's really <laughs> man, that's a that's a tough question.
3: I think I think it comes down once again to supporting the public. Research uh, institutions, the universities, and whatnot, um, as climate change continues to be a problem, you know, there's there's a great poster, a uh, great poster I thought uh, this morning um, about hop gene editing and kind of trying to come up with ways of, of putting inserting new material, genetic material into hops to make the uh, the process go a little faster as far as uh, screening out varieties. And, and uh, putting in uh, genes that will help with resistance and resilience for the plant to pest pressures and climate pressures like water resistance, drought resistance, or drought, yeah, drought resistance. I guess um, those kind of things. I think I think we're going to need to get probably more serious about uh, using these these kind of tools than in the hop business. Um, people have been using them in the grains already, but uh, probably need to use those in the hops. And I think that coming out of the public university programs, that's probably the best resource to do that with.
4: That's an interesting point, Carl. I, I think that, I agree with you, and I think that those are the tools that are going to uh, allow change to occur even faster. And if we think it's happening quickly now, as soon as you start playing with gene editing and being able to screen at that level, you're going to go through thousands and hundreds of thousands of, of seedlings, and you won't even have to let them grow. You'll just be able to do it. So I think that uh, continuing uh, the investment in organizations like HRC, um, the Hop Commissions, those sorts of things that are pushing the 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 progress or the the research portion of it forward, I think is crucial. It's that innovation piece.
0: Anything else from you guys down there? No, it's okay sorry. if there's not.
4: I'm not touching that
0: one. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, we've got just a few minutes left if anyone, uh, any of our friends in the audience has a question for the panel. Um, step up. I'm not sure if that mic's on, but if it, why don't you give it, it a shot. Um, all <laughs> yeah. right over here?
3: Yeah. All right. Uh, it's, uh, just another threat. I, I don't think it tops the list of what uh, you guys... Wait. You about. want to threaten them is what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, that, uh, the MRLs residue levels and things like that, it seems like Europe and U.S. are getting really well homogenized. but with uh, excuse me, harmonized. But with uh, changes in the EU and how they're approaching some of the chemicals that we have labeled mm-hmm. for ops, it may be more of a problem for some of the export markets. And That's again, true. Most of your, your clients are, are domestic craft brewers. It's not relevant, but um, I know for anyone who's big enough of uh, scale to be exporting, um, that, that may be something that can affect the industry in the U.S. There's been a, a number of compounds over the last uh, two years that the EU has on a, a kind of exclusion list of yeah. targeting.
4: Um, I guess I can tackle that one. So we've been uh, playing in the organics market for a decade uh, now. And so there are are products there and techniques that um, we use in the organics uh, side of the farm that we now apply on the conventional side. And it's just to mitigate and manage those MRL yeah. um, uh, pieces. So I think that going back to that comment on innovation, I think we can't be as growers, we can't be afraid right. to try Absolutely. And, and do these other things that may seem to be a little left field, because you never know what you're going to learn. Yeah. And in this case for us, in, in our experience, we're able to apply that uh, this year. So that's how we're going to handle it. Yeah, I
2: mean, we for years we've been using cinnamon oil and rosemary oil to tackle bugs, you know, um, and it's food grade, uh, and it, it works. Um, it's a little more expensive, but we we try. Listen, you know, growers don't want to spray stuff on their hops, right? It costs money. Okay, it's like when you suddenly have to spray something; it costs. It adds to your P and L. So it's not like we want to go out there. I mean, at, least at the Seagull Ranch, we don't have a schedule. We don't we don't work on a schedule. To, to, to do that so we are always kind of reacting in a forward thinking way obviously but we have been using soft products for years at our farm and, and, and we will continue to look for alternatives that will work I think you're absolutely right because um, even if it's a little bit more expensive we know down the line it's going gonna, it's gonna to help the world so that's where we're at
0: one of my favorite question askers and past president of Master Brewers Tom Eplett, has a question
7: <laughs> thanks for the uh, introductions I guess you can hear me Okay, being though I'm probably the oldest guy in the room, when you put the picture of the fire up there, I have to bring this up, okay? Just for comment, all right? Okay, this is dated October 4, 2006. Yakima Warehouse Fire destroys 4% of the nation's yield of crops. Any thoughts?
2: I didn't start it.
7: (laughs) I (laughs) know. No, I mean, just I guess the point being is that some of these. Disasters that happen, yeah. you know, we're all control freaks, and this is something you can't control. That's I just wanted to point out to yeah, everyone else you in this. Can't control that, the truth in that statement. I, well, <laughs> I know. Yeah. Four percent of the world's supply does not fit in one warehouse. Right. <laughs> they, they
5: forgot that part.
7: Yeah. No. Okay. So I, think I stand. I yeah. stand corrected. But anyway, my point. <clears> my throat> point throat> being is that holy shit, what happened? Yeah. That that kind of thing. Yeah. Just bring it yeah. out That's so, all. Yeah, I have a question for uh, you guys as growers, and uh, we t- the keynote speech about uh, how consumers you know, are using their purchasing power to tell us kind of what products they want, and I think that's a really good power and tool, but I grew up on a, a farm as well. I know as farmers, we can do a good job of educating consumers what the sustainable practices we already do. Like you said, we don't want to spray. We only do it in spe- special scenarios, so... Do you think there is opportunity as a grower to also educate the consumers of the sustainable practices you're already engaged in?
4: I think that's going to be coming because I think it's going to be a uh, a marketing point this, uh, from the different uh, organizations. Yes,
2: I, th- I think it could be. I think brewers also have been pretty good in some ways of promoting certain hop varieties on their on their packaging, uh, talking about little things and stories, and and, and that obviously, if they connect the farm to their package, that's always a good thing for the hop business as well. Uh, And it shows the partnership that that they respect and have with with, with growers um, on their packaging and their beer.
3: I think for producers of craft, or consumers of craft beer, they're very receptive to the whole idea of sustain. You don't have to make that argument, really, to them. So Mm it's a little easier to do. And we can pass those things along, like salmon safe you know, label on your, your... your beer label and that kind of thing has not been a hard thing to do really. So thank you. Yes ma'am? I have a question about
1: diversification. So in a lot of the industries, um, farmers tend to diversify their crops and the hop industry it's quite difficult to do you guys have you thought about diversifying and growing other things to maybe offset potential losses or um,
4: So we, yes, I, yes. (laughs) Uh, In a nutshell, we we did do a lot of diversification uh, back a number of years ago, 25, 30 years ago. And what we learned was that we weren't good enough at it. (laughs) So we've now focused and we just specialize on what we know how to do the best. So that's my short answer. Yeah. yeah. Just too I mean, good at growing hops. <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean there are a number of big big players, um, the Roy family for instance. They they do are diversified and there are many others uh, that, that that grow fruit. Um, we grow a little bit of cannabis for fun that we give to brewers when they come to our farm for selection. <laughs> just saying. Just saying. We grow about five pounds a year, and then usually most of it goes to my sons on the East Coast. But that's another story. I, I'm not going to tell you how I get it there. But, back um, in there,
4: John. <laughs> but anyway,
2: we do grow cannabis for fun, and we do give it away. But yeah, it's, we, we're just hops. I mean we, we, I wanted to do wine grapes back in the mid-'80s as a young guy, but my dad said... It takes three years, you know, to get a crop. Why would we do that? And, of course, he was wrong, and I was right, because if you look at the Yakima Valley today, they're growing some spectacular wine grapes. So. But anyway.
3: We're seeing that in some of the other farms. Like Goshi Farm is a great example of someone who's really diversified. They've grown, I think, a barley crop. They're going into barley. They're going into, they're going into wine grapes. For I guess they decided that that was a good idea, and they've been growing wine grapes for a few years. And I think they had a hog farm operation at one point, if I oh, remember wow, right. Really? So they were they were kind of in several, had their hands on a couple of different things, which is probably smart to do, rather than all in one basket. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, unless There's my clock of is enough. off, uh, I believe
0: we're out of time. Um, I hope everyone enjoyed today's session. If you did, uh, please give our panelists a nice uh, round of applause. Thank you. <laughs> That was Carl Ockert, Darren Gimash, John Siegel, and Eric Santarut in Providence, Rhode Island during the 2022 Brewing Summit. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and precision fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.